Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for our second ever Christmas special. Um, so, we have been absent for a lot of 2020, uh, because it was 2020, and stuff happened. Um, we were letting people think that we were dead to get away from our enemies. But I, we've come back at Christmas to share a festive meal with you all. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so we're going to be, because we covered the Tenant Christmas specials last time, uh, we're going to be covering the Smith Christmas specials this time. Not including Time of the Doctor, because uh, we'll be doing that separately at some point. So it'll be uh, A Christmas Carol, The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe, uh, which hopefully I won't have to say too many times, and The Snowman. So, why don't we kick things off with A Christmas Carol? What's happening? Well, concentrating on the pluses, you've definitely got a story of your own now. Also, I got a good look at the fish and I think I understand how the fog works, which is going to help me land a spaceship in the future and save a lot of lives. And I better get some very interesting readings off my sonic screwdriver when I get it back from the shark in your bedroom. There's a shark in my bedroom. Oh, fine. Focus on that. I'll start yourself on Christmas Carol, actually. Because I found... I hadn't actually watched any of these episodes for quite a long time. And so I kind of wasn't totally sure. A Christmas Carol, I kind of had a vague idea that I liked. But otherwise, I didn't really know what I was what I was getting myself in for uh, when we rewatched these. And for all of them, I would say I was, to a greater or lesser extent, I was somewhat pleasantly surprised. Mm. Bearing in mind that Christmas Carol is the one that I had highest expectations for, insofar as I was expecting it to be good, when in fact I actually think it's it's not just good; it's a highlight of the Smith era. I think uh, it's sandwiched in between the Big Bang and the Impossible Astronaut, and I said last time when we were talking about Series Six um, that that was kind of the closest the Smith era really got to an Imperial phase, and this is it in full swing here. So it's got the what people insist on calling the timey wimey shenanigans. Um, it's got the fairy tale aesthetic. It's got um, Smith being very Smith with all of his wacky antics and being paired with a child for quite a bit of the story, um, so to speak. Um, <laughs> anyway. No, that's, um, that's Catherine Jenkins. Anyway, um, this is kind of, um, as I said previously, the the aesthetic of the Smith era kind of keeps moving forward, so it's it's hard to actually come up with a definitive take on it, but this is about as close as it gets. Uh, I mean, it's worth mentioning that it shares a director with both Pandora Opens, The Big Bang, and The Impossible Astronaut, um, Day of the Moon, in the shape of Toby Haynes, who also directed the Reichenbach Fall episode of Sherlock. And interestingly enough, I discovered just before recording. Where are my super hulocks at? Oh, they're out there. <laughs> And yeah, I think, um, I mean, one thing that I want to kind of look at with all of these episodes, I think, is something I found interesting about these episodes and about, certainly in the Smith era, I don't know if it necessarily carries forward to Capaldi, but where I think um, Davies' Christmas episodes tend to be kind of 
big spectacular festive outings that kind of have Christmas as a backdrop to a greater or lesser extent. I think Moffat's Christmas specials tend to be more about Christmas on some level. Now that kind of comes and goes. I think it's stronger in some of these episodes than others, so to speak. But this is like, this is a fairly obvious example of it in kind of doing a take on one of the most famous Christmas stories of them all, which kind of explores themes of like kindness and forgiveness and and family and these kinds of things that we associate with Christmas. So yeah, I'm the headline is I really like it. So yeah, I also I I I had I don't think I'd seen any of these since they were first broadcast. So it was interesting to revisit them. I think that this was one where I had not remembered how like I was favorably surprised by how good it was. Um, even though I remembered quite enjoying it at the time, I still sort of, I sometimes wonder with things like, am I still going to enjoy them watching them back? And I, I really did. I think it is a testament to sort of how, how, to, to the values of Doctor Who as a show that the idea of somebody doing, like, like hitting a child is some... Is it sort of an a moral line hmm. um, that has a real weight to it, even with all of the sort of various taking over the world scenarios that we have on the show? Hmm. And I actually think that it's good as a version. It's interesting as a version of a Christmas Carol as well, um, because I think that the sort of critique of the kind of heartless capitalism that Scrooge embodies has really been updated in a way that a lot of Christmas Carol adaptations don't bother to because he's um he's got this fear of like immigration and he also seems to be some kind of payday loan slash loan shark mm. shark mm. guy mm. um so I think that that felt like the story had been refreshed whilst also having some fun with a sort of space victorian setting mm. so yeah i i think I, I i did really like it i have some issues with it as i have issues with almost everything in the world <laughs> um i'm not like a huge fan of the like variety of time travel stories where someone meets someone when they're a child and then has a relationship with them because it just seems kind of weird but you know what She's been stuck in the fridge for a long time. Like, <laughs> whatever. It was good. I, it warmed my heart. And I hope they have a happy last day. Michael Gambon. What was it? Michael Gambon. Yeah. Michael Gambon and Catherine Jenkins on a sleigh. Am I getting everybody's names right? Yes, I think so. Okay, good. Because I'm always like terrified that I'll accidentally say the wrong name of a famous person. And everyone's like... Bethan, you fool! I, I mean, I can't get the name of the first episode of Series 6 right. Yeah, but I feel like that's... That, in Doctor Who fandom, that might be on the same scale, but I feel like if I said, like, Ian McKellen instead of Michael Gambon in the wider world... They are very similar. Fighting me. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Anyway, I've got on a real tangent. Because and Ian I, McKellen is in The Snowman as well. He so is, he yes. given for... Which I had completely forgotten about until we got there, but anyway. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's all I've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jacob, here I'm just kind of going to echo what's already been said. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, I'm not a massive fan of Christmas episodes in general. I have to say, like I, I don't like the idea that every Christmas we have to have an episode with a Christmas motif and it has to be shoehorned in in any way possible. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly in the Davies era, that led to kind of some stuff that I just really didn't get. But in this particular case, um, I thought it was really thematically coherent. Um, As you were saying, you know, that kind of updating of the Christmas Carol story is, is one that makes sense. And I think what's interesting for me is that it makes sense in kind of the context of when it was released, you know, it comes out in 2011. Um, so you're deep into austerity after the crash of 2008. Um, you've got a conservative Lib Dem coalition who are imposing cuts. Um, there's debates happening at the time about, you know, people being in kind of precarious work and relying on the kind of loan sharks that we're seeing in this episode. Um, I do also have problems with the fact that it uses the Christmas Carol story is an analogy for that. I think there's kind of uh, there's a lack of conceptual clarity about that. But like it is a sci-fi program, you know, it's not going to be uh, like a, a totally accurate representation. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'll go into it later. But overall, like I'm pretty positive on it. Um, yeah, and I enjoyed it. Um, I thought the, 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 the shark slay at the end was a bridge too far. Would you say. say the shark <laughs> had jumped the Doctor Who? I don't know. I'm trying to do some kind of thing with it, but it's not working. I love the shark slay. That's how I want to travel forever. For the sake of balance, I am neutral on the shark slay. Uh. Uh, We've got a wow, good, a good really, uh, range really of opinion on the sharks, though. Then, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we are a podcast about a BBC show, so <laughs> obviously we have to maintain neutrality, neutrality, in, complete impartiality. And um, so, if we do talk about any ecological themes as well, we do have to have a cl- uh, get a climate change denier in. Oh, point. I'm I'll, I'm going to be all over the ecological themes. <laughs> I thought you might be. Yeah. Um. Okay, uh, in that case, let's start with talking about, like, because it's something you both mentioned, and it's something that I'm interested in, the what this does with the story of A Christmas mm-hmm. Carol, then. Because A Christmas Carol is, it's a story that, like, it's obviously, it's a story about one man's conscience, one man's soul, if you like, and um, that's how we, we tend to think of it. But um, being a Dickens story... Um, there is kind of a degree of like a social consciousness in there as well. I think less so than in a lot of other Dickens, but like Scrooge is explicitly um, positioned as somebody who is unfeeling towards the poor and he talks about workhouses as the natural place um, for the kind of undeserving poor and this kind of thing. What do we think of this story's kind of updating of that then? Do we think it kind of... How do we think it like navigate that tension shall we say between being kind of a private story and having a social consciousness there wasn't enough frogs there should be frogs in a christmas oh because of the muppets 
Yes. Okay. That took me a moment. I was th- I One was thinking my, my brain just foods. immediately went to it takes you away. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose maybe that was to restore the balance of frogs. Mm, mm, um, mm. For me, it works quite well. It's obviously not a beat for beat retelling of a Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um, which I would say I think is a, is a real strength of it actually. Yeah, it, I actually kind of wish that it was less obvious that the Doctor. I, I kind of wish that it wasn't the case that the Doctor is obviously and clearly inspired by the story of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. One of my most niche and petty critiques of this episode is, you know, the bit where um, he's sort of on the phone to Amy and Mm. um, the speakers are playing Ding Dong Merrily on High. Mm. And she's like, what is that? He's like, oh, it's A Christmas Carol. No, what is it? It's A Christmas... I just kind of wish that he did that and then that didn't inspire what he did at all. (laughs) It, that there was just a scene of him shouting it's a Christmas carol in there mm. anyway <laughs> um, because I feel like I, I feel like that slightly makes it a bit too obvious what's going on and then it makes it draws more attention to the bits where it's not an exact retelling of a Christmas carol as if those are sort of setbacks when actually I think that it's kind of better for the fact that it's doing a sci-fi riff on it it's a bit strange in that the the sort of human big humanizing moment where he realizes that he should let the ship through and save all those people isn't necessarily a resolution to his isn't necessarily a really a resolution to his issue of freezing people and stealing their time yeah um, although obviously I think you can reasonably draw some assumptions about how he might have a redemption as far as that plot thread goes as well. Mm. But it is a bit odd that it's not, uh, cause in, 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 in the Dickens Christmas Carol, it's a pretty clear, like, mm. resolution of all of the things that Scrooge has problems with to begin with, but there's no scene of him letting the people out of the ice yeah ages but i don't know maybe that would have been a bit too too much yeah i think i wonder if um because i think you need to end on that last uh that that one night that they have Mm. so i wonder if it would have taken away from that and but yeah I, i know what you mean it does feel a bit kind of odd for me kind of the strength of this story is in the way in which it uses um things like the freezing metaphor as a like like a metaphor for you know debt i guess Mm. um the way it uses that to kind of humanize what's going on behind the kind of abstraction of uh the the purely economic by having kind of a person frozen as the as as the image of debt, and then that person, you know, is is freed, and and you see them as, you know, someone who has emotions and hopes and fears and dreams and a life. It kind of shows that there's there are people behind all of the economic figures and numbers that are driving the system that you know Kazran or Scrooge has in place. And I think that kind of gets reinforced when they put him onto the bridge of the ship 
later on and I think I think it's Amy who specifically says you know if you're going to allow all these people to die you need to see them first you know and I think it kind of emphasizes exactly what the impact is the human impact is of what um, of what he's doing now all that being said like one thing that I would say is that this kind of return to a Christmas Carol uh, and these kind of almost like Malthusian ideas of like surplus population and so on aren't necessarily the best analogy for 2010s austerity or what we like term neoliberalisation I guess like a intensification of neoliberalisation it was I think at the time there were numerous critics like people like Owen Jones, Polly Toynbee I was saying this myself at the time um, who were kind of attacking the, the government's policies by you know on things like welfare cuts by talking about the idea of we're returning to Victorian values of an undeserving mm. poor and yeah and this idea that there's a surplus population um, and uh, yeah you, you can see the analogies there um, but I think more recent criticism since people like Philip Murawski would actually emphasise the fact that like neoliberalism or neoliberalisation which 2010's austerity was a part of is not the same as classical liberalism from the Victorian era. Um, you know, like it's, I think a lot of people just say it's about cutting back the state uh, as classical liberalism was, and it's not. It's about a re regulation of the state, really. Um, you know, like welfare, the egregious thing about, about the welfare reforms is not just that they cut back welfare, it's that they actively get further into people's lives and are basically keeping tabs on them as they look for work and the same with the financial sector it's not just deregulation it's re-regulating in a way that allows uh these kind of capitalistic interests to get away with the things that they're doing now the reason why i'm saying this stuff is not because i think doctor who should be a perfect reflection of reality because obviously it's not going to be, because it's a sci-fi programme about a man who flies around in a blue police box. You know, that's kind of, it would be kind of ridiculous to say that. But I think these kind of forms of pop culture that, you know, lots of people consume, particularly like younger people, it's kind of important to, I guess, correct stuff like that. Because I don't think you can have a proper view of history and what's actually happening. You can't properly critique the government unless you know those things similarly like you know you, I think all this Malthusian stuff again comes through in like the, the you know the fish in the fog and the, the shark and the the, sh the shark eating the smaller fish earlier on it's this idea that we're moving back towards a, a Darwinian kind of predatory form of capitalism and I, I just think that's not quite right but as a as a Christmas special of like uh, a science fiction program that is clearly like aimed at families and young children, um, it's it's good and it's good that it's raising these issues in the first place and doing it in a way that has an emotional resonance and an emotional core. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, for a start, I think um, we can come back to some of what you were saying about like Victorian values when we come to the snowmen because mm. that obviously very directly relevant there 
I actually want to just pick up on uh, what you were saying there about it being essentially like being a children's, being a, a family show, being mm. child friendly, if you like. Yeah. Because I think a Christmas Carol, I, actually Christmas Carol and I think uh, Doctor of the Widow, Widow and the Wardrobe in particular are more so than most Doctor Who actually seem to be directed towards children in a more overt way than a lot of the um than a lot of the sort of main run of the series if you like is because uh, particularly well with both stories actually i think there's a real kind of there's a childlike sense of wonder there's the i mean there's the the doctor as a father christmas figure mm-hmm. it's almost especially in um in christmas carol actually there's almost this kind of acting out of a ch- the childhood dream of a viewer where the doctor climbs in your window and brings you off on an adventure um and in fact kazran kind of becomes the viewer in the way in which he's like watching his own memory and like shouting no don't and this this kind of thing it's something that i actually it really appeals to me in um in this story in particular is there's a kind of there's a kind of there's an anti-cynicism to it Mm. that i that i find really appealing Again, like I think this comes a little bit from the source material, and um, because the A Christmas Carol is this interesting kind of uh, story that um, seems to depict a very kind of hard-nosed reality, uh, but is extremely idealistic in itself, and extremely um, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but moralistic in a kind of well, in that instance, an explicitly Christian way, which is obviously not really the case here. The, the the bit that sums this up for me is the idea that the, the there's a bit little way in where the doctor is kind of explaining why music affects the the fish in the way that it does the like the sonic resonance and all this kind of thing and the young Kazran just stops him and like cuts across him and there's a sense in which like it's kind of enough that there's that it's beautiful it's enough that it's enough that we have this wonder. It doesn't need to be kind of dosed with realism, if you like. So yeah, I think I think um, it's just an aesthetic that I that I really like. That really kind of spoke to me from this story. Uh, I think it's repeated less successfully in the Doctor of the Widow and the Wardrobe, actually. But we'll we'll get to that. I am on the point actually about it being kind of about a child's experience of the Doctor. I did wonder whilst we were watching it. Um, if perhaps when Kazran sort of grows away from the Doctor, even in spite of um, that moment, initial moment of wonder as a twelve-year-old, I wondered if that was supposed to be kind of like a fan, like like um, children thinking that Doctor Who isn't cool anymore when mm. they get to be like teenagers, and it's kind of documenting that going away from the show and then coming back. Mm. I did wonder if there was something of that in it as well. So that as well as it being for child, the child audience, it's for sort of older, maybe teenagers who aren't, who don't feel as, mm. who, who might feel like they're a bit above Doctor Who now and sort of showing that there's still that emotion there. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that, yeah. I also like how there's not a, there's not a villain mm. as such and there's not an alien menace. It's a human man who needs to change, and I think that's a really a point in its favour. I'm a fan of Doctor Who stories that don't just go down the route of like there's a creature from space and it's bad. Mm. 
I think that um, it's done very well here, I think. Yeah, and obviously the, like, the lack of an evil monster um, is kind of a Moffat trademark in itself as well. Uh, not that other writers don't do it, of course, but... So, sir, the, the president says there's a galaxy-class ship trapped in the cloud layer and, well, we have to let it land. Or? Well, or it'll crash, sir. Oh. Well, that's a kind of landing, isn't it? You know. It's from Earth, sir, registering over 4,000 life forms on board. Oh. <laughs> not if we wait a bit. <laughs> you can't just let it crash, sir. Says who? I'll get it there. Look, Petal, we already have a surplus population. No more people allowed on this planet. I don't make the rules. Oh no, hang on. I do. I, I mean, I did have a, like a, a vague thing to say, which might be relevant because it kind of comes back in the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe about like the ecological thing here. Mm, I thought you might. Uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, you, we, this was going to come at some point, but yeah, like. Um, this whole thing where, like, they can control the fish. Uh, and it specifically said as um, that that he, his dad, tamed the, tamed the skies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I own them. So there's a whole thing again there about, like, how, you know, capitalism treats nature, um, you know, kind of just as a resource to be tamed and used, um, like, for wealth creation. Um, again, I think there's an issue with that. Like, if you're being like really nitpicky about the fact that it's kind of setting up a binary between the two, you know, it's like man doesn't just well say man humans don't just act on nature. It's it's both ways round, um, and that kind of sense that sort of very unidirectional model instead of a dialectical one is kind of damaging. But again, you know, it's not going to be accurate. It's just mm. kind of a thing to say, I guess, and raise. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Uh, yeah, again, it's like, um, like again, uh, in the drawing on the kind of Christmas Carol mm. original, it's a story with a kind of very direct moral point and moral purpose. And so I think it's kind of it's, and uh, while it brings it, it brings in like a, a fair am- amount of thematic matter. I think it's kind of it's very much. It's a story with quite a clear drive. Mm. I think, um, actually, one way in, in which potentially it improves upon the original Christmas Carol <laughs> is that in the sort of Dickens version, it's quite reliant on the idea of the deserving poor, mm-hmm. um, where it's okay to help the Cratchits because they're sort of superhumanly nice as a family. <laughs> um but the people who he rejects giving money to their charity are collecting for, I think, specifically the deserving poor, or it's, there's some kind of language that it's couched in. And at first I thought, oh, well, that's kind of still the same in this in this episode because, um, obviously, the family of character I can't remember the name of. Neither can I, actually. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I uh, don't seem to have made a note of it. Okay. Nice frozen lady who can yes. sing good. Um, yes, Elsa, are, yes. Are nice. Um, but the people on the spaceship, when you think about it, he doesn't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. There is the bit where they sort of sing, 
And he's like, why are they singing? And Amy tells him, for their lives. Hmm. And in that sense, they're being forced to kind of perform this nice Mm. spirit of Christmas kind of thing to try and persuade him to take pity on them. And so that's not really like who they are. That's them being kind of coerced in a way. And so the thing, the thing about people on the ship is kind of interesting in that it's a implying some kind of universal need for compassion rather than just directed at people who are proven to be kind of model citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if maybe there's something in that about the the sort of um, specifically 2010s kind of context where people were being where people where you're sort of if you go to the job center for universal credit you're kind of forced to prove mm. that you're one of the honorable unemployed and that you're actively searching for work rather than this idea that you know maybe we should show compassion to everybody and not dictate based on what we think is like a moral way for the like underclasses to behave well, I think to add to that, there is a sense of like a there is like a universal compassion in this story because it's also it kind of dovetails with some of what we were saying in previous episodes, including the last Christmas special about the the notion of the ordinary, the notion of the mundane in Doctor Who, because this is the the source of the the oft quoted line about whatever it is nine hundred years of time and space. I've never met someone who wasn't important before. So there is a sense in which like. The, that family whose name I can't remember are meant to be standing in for everyone. The Cratchits. Like, sure, let's yeah. Be real. <laughs> <laughs> Slash whatever Scrooge's girlfriend is called. Belle? Belle. Problem is, all of my Christmas Carol, no- or most of my Christmas Carol knowledge, does come from the Muppet Christmas Carol. So while it is a pretty faithful adaptation, if there's any details they change. I'm just going to get them wrong. Molly and Molly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think that the thing about nobody, about never meeting anybody who wasn't important would be kind of the thing that I take as the kind of thesis statement for this episode, really. Mm, mm, In mm. the same way that um, you were talking about the finding the beautiful, even above the, like, scientific, I think that that's what kind of resonated with me about it Mm. as well as the the quite sort of horrifying thing of uh sardek becoming his father that's i found that really quite movingly done Mm, mm, yeah Um, and i mean before we move on to any other episodes i also want to point out that i think that there are some really good performances in this mm. like from michael gambon obviously but i think katherine jenkins is good yeah yeah um the kid kid sadik mm, i forgot to look up his name but good. Yeah, he's very good actually yeah middle in between age sadik i have to say bland <laughs> but you know He's doing his best, bless him, and, like, whatever. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I also think um, she doesn't get a huge amount of screen time, but Karen Gillan is, like, as good as ever. Well, good in the way that Karen Gillan is very good here. Okay. 
Let's go for the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe then. Mm. Yay! Mum's bedroom. Grown up, you're basic boring. Lillian Cyril's room. I'm going to be honest. Masterpiece, the ultimate bedroom. A sciencey, wincey workbench, a jungle, a maze, a window disguised as a mirror, a mirror disguised as a window. Selection of torches for midnight feasts and secret reading. Zen garden, mysterious cupboard, zone of tranquility. Rubber wall, dream tank, exact model of the rest of the house, not quite to scale. Apologies. Dolls with comical expressions. The Magna Carta, a football. Coludo, the yellow fort. Where are the beds? Well, I couldn't fit everything in there, had to be sacrifices. Anyway, who needs beds when you've got... Hammers! Can we make a solemn pact to call it wardrobe from now on? Yes. Save us having to... <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so here's a fun thing. I, I, For this episode, I like wrote down the order in which we'd sort of give our impressions, and just so that I had something to refer to. But I used our initials. Um, so this one is almost subtitled in my notes, JCB. <laughs> so, which means, Jacob, I'm going to take us away. Yeah, I have pretty mixed feelings about this. I think I actually didn't even watch it when it came out. I think I, oh, I, think right. I watched, yeah, I think I watched it later, like maybe on like player or something, I don't know. Because, mm. um... I saw the title and I was just like, I don't even think I have the strength to, to watch this. That being said, I don't think it's quite that bad. I know it's got an appalling like kind of reputation. And I think there are some good reasons for that. Yeah, so I mean, essentially this is kind of a pastiche of kind of World War II, like the 30s, 40s era, um, drawing on, you know, the Box of Delights and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. When I was watching it, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this, okay, this is nice. Like, it felt quite cosy. I had my box of Quality Street that I shouldn't have bought from Aldi for three pounds, three euros, 33. But um, other shops are available. Um, anyway, um, but I, I don't know. As I was watching it, I was like, the problem with this episode, and I'll go into this in more detail later on, is the cosiness of it. Okay. Like, like the issue with this episode, and I completely understand, like, El Sandifer's got a, a post about, this is Doctor Who doing children's literature, essentially, and it's very much aimed at the young children, and so a lot of people being sniffy about it is kind of derived from that. I think there's some truth to that. But I also think this is probably not a, an era that they should have tackled through that medium. Um, and I think the coziness of it is kind of going into uh, nostalgia narratives that were yeah. resurrected as part of the um, austerity project. Um, I'll go into it in more detail later on. So, yeah kind of mixed feelings there's also the the kind of ecological metaphor mm. um with the with the forest which i think yeah doesn't quite gel with what with the other stuff that's going on i don't think they ever quite managed to tie those two together as well as they could so yeah kind of good and bad <laughs> yeah uh, i think i would broadly agree insofar as like Possibly more than any other Doctor Who episode I've watched in quite a long time. 
this one really benefited from low expectations because <laughs> it has such a terrible reputation. I think it was like bottom 10 mm-hmm. in the last um, big poll that Doctor Who magazine did back in 2013. And it's like, it's really definitely not that bad. I also have some have some issues with it. I think I have a lot of kind of structural issues with it. I think it loses its way, uh, weirdly enough, once it gets into the forest. Uh, I quite like the the early stuff, but I think there are kind of a lot of weird little bits of plot that don't quite hang together uh, from that point on. I think, like, um, I you're you're right to bring up that El Sander proposal, which I think is quite good, and like uh, that's kind of where I derived some of what I was saying about uh, a Christmas Carol as well, in terms of it being explicitly kind of for children, which this. This really is as well. Again, there's this kind of like the sense of the the childlike wonder of what it would be like to be the doctor, to turn up at a house and the doctor is there and he he has lemonade taps and he's giving you hammocks and all this kind of stuff, which I quite like. And I think, and the other thing that I will say about this one, especially early on, is I think it has a kind of, there's a genuine emotional intelligence to it that I Mm -hmm. think is kind of underrated. Uh, the first of all, the association of Christmas with loss, which is like a very real thing for a lot of people, because Christmas is so bound up with ideas of family, uh, especially people who've lost a, a loved one, like in the last year, um, will have that problem. So, so I think dealing with that uh, is a good move. Unfortunately, it does get overwritten by the fact that Alexander Armstrong playing a World War Two pilot, which seems to be the role he was born to play somehow does get rescued and all that kind of stuff. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I think the story loses its way a bit. And I, th- I also think there's like, there's a sense, there's a kind of, um, there's an emphasis on empathy in it, which I quite like. Like, I I, th- I think this is one of the things that doesn't sit right with some people and I kind of get why. But there's a, there's a sense of um, Madge in particular at the centre of the story as um, that her she has a kind of, an emotional core and actually a moral core that is kind of what saves the day in some way, in some respects. But yeah. Oh, one other thing to mention actually, um, is that like, again, this is a classic Christmas story in some respect, but it's also, I, I think the choice of Narnia is an interesting one because it's kind of weirdly dealing with a ghost of Doctor Who because C.S. Lewis died the day before Doctor Who, mm-hmm. before an unearthly child aired. Before the first episode aired. Um, St. Day's Kennedy, funnily enough. Uh, connection? Who knows? Um, oh no, don't say that. <laughs> there is no connection. <laughs> um, but all, And also, obviously, Doctor Who is bound up with this uh, kind of tradition of children's adventure stories where there's like a portal to another world. It's like it, this episode's very explicitly playing with that in the notion of a box that leads you to another world. Which is exactly what the TARDIS is. But yeah, anyway, Bethan. Yeah, so I kind of had the opposite thing with this one to, I think, what most people would probably have coming in to rewatch it. Whereas I was, because I was sort of aware of the bad reputation that it had amongst fandom, particularly for its like presentation of gender. Of which more later. Mm. Um, but I actually remembered like not thinking like like kind of finding it okay as broadcast so that having been said i was 
disappointed on watching it in some ways because it was it's not very good it's paced very strangely however i think the thing that i was remembering and that i still think is very good is um okay i'm gonna try and get a name of a person this time claire skinner yes as madge is very very good Mm -hmm. i think her performance is incredible because she's got a lot that she needs to get across in terms of this grief that she's trying to hold back and then when it all is sort of released um later in the episode i do kind of get chills from how intense it is Mm. and i think that for her performance alone it probably shouldn't have quite as bad a reputation as it does however there are a lot of things that i kind of struggle with like i am not i'm not convinced by the by the take on Narnia because I don't think that it's got quite a strong a stronger stance on the Narnia books as as a Christmas Carol has with a Christmas Carol. It's kind of not really doing Narnia, but it's also not consciously not doing it either. So there's slightly weird things like the fact that um I was mentioning to Kieran after we'd watched it that I thought that the children were a bit too old. And you pointed out that well, they're, they're that age to be the same age as the two youngest Pevensey children in The mm. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. More or less. But yeah. then I think the problem with how they're... The problem then is that they're written in the episode to be kind of modern children of that age. So mm. there's a line from the girl very early on where she's annoyed at the little boy and she says, he's always making up words and breathing. And there's also quite a few people saying things like, oh my God which felt not very Mm. 40s. That feels like a much more sort of 2010s way of speaking, Mm. which makes her seem like a more modern teenager, which then is difficult to square with this kind of more 40s world where you were still kind of a child when you were a teenager in a way that you aren't today. So I think that some of the problems come from this kind of doing Narnia but not really doing Narnia and then there's also just the fact that it completely gets away from itself I think I can't even really I'm not that good at articulating what the problems are with the pacing but it just like dwindles to nothing the beats land very strangely I think in the in the back half Uh, they kind of get get quite stretched out and then come really fast on each other's heels towards the end Mm. It is just, it just kind of feels off somehow. It feels like, it actually, it feels like pretty much the thing we were saying in series six, where like all of Moffat's script kind of needed another draft or two to work mm. out some of the kinks. Uh, so I think it's it's basically that again. Mm. Um, I think, <laughs> let's do the ecology thing, because I, I am very interested to hear about that. Hmm. Well... Um, I mean, it kind of, it's all somewhat wrapped up in one package, like like a Christmas present. <laughs> it's all together. Um, Ecology for me. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have. Yeah, so the thing I was saying about, the, the, you know, this idea that the episode is too cosy, basically, and I know Elsandifer kind of refers to this when she, she describes it as like a World War II becoming in this one a heritage theme park. I was going to mention that actually. Yeah, yeah and, and like 
like like that's the thing like it's this it's this when when he obviously when he first crash lands in in England uh and I'm using England specifically for a reason yeah um, yeah it is um very much this like idyllic uh notion of what I mean I mean people like Michael Gardner and Claire Westall talk about this like Englishness as this kind of idyllic version of, of of Britain, even though it's actually an empire. You know, so like when they come into the village, he's got the, the, the village green and obviously his police box is there and it's all very pretty and lovely, ignoring the fact that obviously it's all based on a whole empire of exploitation. Instead, it's just kind of this impression of Britain as like, well, they all drink tea and play cricket and go to church you know um and i and i think i think the reason why that happens is because this is a pastiche and because it's it's constructing that period out of the cultural signifiers of the time that's understandable because it's trying to do a uh, like a children's story you know mm. so i can see why that would be the case i also think by the way sorry to jump in but uh i think this is kind of what accounts for the way everyone speaks because it is like a 2010s version of the 1940s mm. um which i i still think is kind of a problem um mm. but yeah that's how i see it anyway. it just made me come over all stranger danger when the girl's going to visit the caretaker in his mm. room i know what you mean yeah <laughs> anyway sorry go on but yeah like one of one of the issues with that, um, and and people like Owen Hadley, uh, Westall, Gardner, um, Lucy Potter have all talked about this. Like the that nostalgic view of the forties, World War Two, the fifties, and so on. Like it plays into um, the narrative of austerity. The narratives that were used to justify austerity at the time. So, some Owen Hadley has a book called *The Ministry of Nostalgia*, which is all about the way in which the aesthetics of the forties were used to, you know, get people behind the austerity that happened after two thousand and eight. You know, a way of kind of deflecting the reality that poor people were being asked to pay cruelly for a. Uh, crisis that was caused by the banking sector primarily um, and their, you know, just total irresponsibility. And it was a way of deflecting attention from that and saying we all have to come together and pitch in, you know, like we did in the war. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that that is one real issue I have with it. I'm not suggesting the episode's doing it purposefully, you know, I'm not suggesting it's invoking that to support austerity. It's clearly... I wouldn't say it is, but I think when this is aimed at children and there's kids watching it, I don't think they should be getting an impression of, well, wasn't Britain lovely at this time? You know, mm. like, no, it wasn't. And and I think there is, I'll come to the ecology bit, I think there is some attempt through the ecology thing to try and undercut that, you could argue. But it doesn't really work. I don't think they pull it off. Um, so obviously, when they go into the other, like the forest world, um, there's these uh, like soldiers, I guess, from Androzani Major, who are trying to melt down these trees um, for fuel. Now, 
I had to look this up because I'd forgotten this, but Androzani Major apparently in the kind of the law of the program was colonized by humans. So it is part of the whole Empire thing. It is like a future mm. version of Empire, effectively. Um, so in that sense, you could say, well, there is a recognition here of the fact that, you know, we did, uh, you know, it basically appropriate resources from all over the world um, for, you know, for our own ends. But that still doesn't undercut any of the nostalgic vision of the 40s, something that incidentally is is particularly kind of embodied in Alexander Armstrong's kind of BBC Queen's English pilot, you know, which is not what it would have been like. A lot of the pilots would have been people like my granddad on my dad's side, working class, you know, men, unfortunately, primarily shouldn't have just been men, but from, like, you know, working class areas. It would not have been, oh, well, isn't this nice? Like Also a lot of people who weren't English. Yes, yeah, that's the other, yeah, yeah. That, and that's that's the other problem with this is yeah the it, it tries to undercut with an ecological narrative but obviously there's no one populating that area there's for it there's a forest mm. but there's nothing about the subjugation of, of other people and racism like systemic racism and again like yeah this this is a program aimed at children and so I understand why it's not tackling that but my core point really is that they shouldn't have tried to Look at this period through that lens because it's inherently problematic, and it's not the first time Moffat's done this. Because, like when we looked at season one, there was the whole thing, the empty child, where the Doctor describes Britain against the Nazis as like a one damp little island. Says no, and obviously it's not just an island, as we said. So yeah, Uh, very problematic. And I think there's also an issue with the way in which there's a kind of partition between the the nature and society things. It's like you have this area through the door with the forest, which, yes, admittedly is growing and builds buildings and things, but still, like, they're they're very much separated. And then, obviously, the the, the 40s and so on. Mm. Um, So I think, yeah, again, it it recreates a kind of uh, a problematic binary. Uh, between nature and society that actively undermines the ecological narrative. So yeah, I'll stop waffling, but that's kind of my take. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. And actually, you kind of um, you went some way towards answering a question that I had that I couldn't couldn't quite resolve in my own head uh, while I was watching it, which is why Androzani, why Androzani Major, why like it's clearly a very specific reference. Um, like clearly there's something about the caves of Androzani that is being sort of gestured towards here, but I couldn't quite work out what it was. Mm. And it fits in with the whole, the whole kind of, because the thing with, with the caves of Androzani is again, it's the exploitation of resources and it's a war over resources. So there's clearly, you know, there is clearly an attempt there to to Mm. connect the two. Yeah. Tell me how you met. Uh, he followed me home. I worked in the dairy. He used to follow me home. Your father, he looks so young. He said he'd keep on following me till I married him. Didn't like to make a scene. 
what's this? Could it be gender o'clock? Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'm ready. So, this is the bad reputation of this episode that I was most familiar with. Yeah. Um, and that I think is one of the biggest things people have against it, which is the fact that um, the reason why Madge is the only member of the team who can help the tree souls escape to another planet is because she's a woman and maybe also because she's a mom. And when I watched it, I was actually... I was I was alert for these things because I knew to expect them. Mm. And so I was kind of a bit surprised and a bit relieved when they don't quite exactly say, well, you know, the two genders, male and female, and because they have the XX chromosomes, that's what makes them strong rather than the men. And also mums are extra strong because they've, their mothers and are better than the rest of women. So I was like, oh, they don't actually say that, really. So maybe it's fine. But then I was thinking about it afterwards and it still leaves like, I was like thinking about it and I was like, no, but I'm still uncomfortable. So why is that? And I think the problem is that sometimes there's like a default interpretation of certain tropes that you have to be specific about that you're not doing Otherwise, it just comes across as the way that people kind of expect it to. So it's like if you had a, if you have a story where like love saves the day and it's like a man and a woman. And then at the end, you're like, oh, isn't it amazing that the love between one man and one woman can just can just really bring people together? I feel like it make it always makes me feel a bit weird unless you also are like. Of course, love can be between any genders of people and that would also mm. be great. And that's something that like rubs me the wrong way and stuff that I really like because they kind of do that in Hades Town and I don't I find it a bit weird then and it's just I feel like there's the point where they're saying that only women can wear the tree crown or whatever, but because you don't say something like you have to, I don't know, because I feel like I sound like such a parody of what people think that, like, woke criticism is, but I feel like unless you say something along the lines of, like, people who identify as women or something, it just makes it seem like you mean some kind of innate biological feature, Hmm. which, of course, is not how gender works. And so because they don't do that, that's why they they don't say explicitly that but because they don't say anything to counter it it feels like they're saying the biological thing the thing with the mum is a bit less awkward because I think that it's I think with this one it's fairly clear that they were trying to mean that like she's the children's mum and that's why she's more than female to them hmm because the line is something like more than female, she's mum. Mm. But I think that they should have said. I think I think that's maybe where the redraft thing comes in. Because I think mm. that what the line should have been is something like she's your mum. Yeah. Because I think so. Of course, she's more than like oh, just 
female to the children because she's their mother. Mm. But it does kind of come across, it can go both ways. And I don't think that people are wrong for taking umbrage at the fact that it sounds as if that it might be saying that mums are inherently strong. But apart from all of that, which is kind of just me trying to explain like the bad taste in my mouth that it gives me these these lines. I also just don't like the thing of it being like strong is female, weak is male, because it's such a shallow way of like it's a it's a really shallow way of trying to be empowering towards the female characters when actually we see Madge being incredibly strong in lots of other ways. And it could just they could literally have just been like we need it needs somebody going through a powerful emotional experience and then she still would have qualified because she's going through something awful and we've seen that and so i think i would have preferred it if it was some kind of strength that was unique to her and the experience she was going through rather than it just being so reliant on pla- on on tree people's interpretation of binary gender roles. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, um I largely agree with you, yeah. I think um like again in the the post that Jacob and I are going back and forth citing by El Sandifer, um <laughs> she I think she puts it very well um about the um the the your kind of your first point uh, about like having to having to be women and there being a kind of sense of it being biological women where she says like it's not overtly transphobic but it is cis normative which is like a i think think that's kind of what i was yeah gesturing towards which i think is a good a a good distinction to make um and yeah i think as regards the other stuff um so i've always assumed um and i think like having rewatched the episode and having rewatched all of series six kind of cemented this that part of the reason why there's such a strong emphasis on motherhood is almost like a kind of um uh like a reaction against some what we were saying about series six that like there's a lot of stories about fathers um in which mothers are kind of absent and mm. uh, so I think it's kind of a it's an attempt to put that right a bit. I don't think it's totally successful I don't, I don't really think it's successful at all. And I think part of that is, as you say, it's it's very kind of heavy-handed and this kind of thing. But I also, I think one of the best encapsulations of this I've come across is um, in Una McCormick's Black Archive on the Curse of Fenric, weirdly enough. Um, she talks about wardrobe uh, as another episode set in a, war, in a World War II setting. Um, and she, the point she makes is that it kind of, ends up centering the notion of the nuclear family, especially when they get reunited with the father at the end. Mm. In a way that, like, um, she actually explicitly contrasts it with Empty Child Dr. Dances, which doesn't, Mm. and kind of pointedly directs the other way. uh, Or in other ways, I suppose. Probably a better way to put that. Um, Which I think is interesting, because I I think that's, that's that's about where I sit as well, in terms of, like, um, I don't think this story is like immensely bigoted or anything. I don't think it's immensely harmful, but I think it's just kind of it's centering a lot of assumptions that it kind of should be gliding past in one way or another uh, mm-hmm. regarding gender roles and that kind of thing. And it, it's trying to gesture in progressive directions, I think, but I 
it's not getting there. Mm. Like, something that I thought of as well, which, you know, maybe sounds a bit negative, but... um, No. uh, Yeah. Like, I wonder how far this, a lot of this stuff is kind of embedded within a lot of the key symbols of the program itself from its inception. You know, because it's from the early 60s originally when, you know, it's kind of the period of, like, just after the war uh, when Britain's empire is still kind of, you know, a thing, but, like, it's slowly, slowly, you know, kind of falling apart. But, um, and I guess part of it is not just the way the programme began, but kind of how it's now seen in the, in the like, in the cultural like, consciousness is it's almost become like a symbol of, of kind of like, again, like a kind of idealised Englishness. Like, oh, look at this, this odd little, uh, odd little uh, eccentric programme. But it's also like in the central uh, image itself of, of the police box. It's like this man who goes in this symbol of law and order <laughs> and goes around to different planets and... and um, you know, different peoples and kind of exposes them to this, like, law and order, tea-drinking, idealised version of Britishness, you know. And I think there's a great um, there's a great documentary on, I think it's the Happiness Patrol DVD, where they talk about, you know, kind of Doctor Who and regime change and it's, it's kind of roots within the Empire and, and the way that the original series in particular approached regime change is very much symptomatic of... Uh, Britain and its history of empire but yeah I don't know like what everyone else thinks but yeah is it a problem that's kind of inherently in the fabric of the program itself not saying you can't change it I'm just saying like it's inherently vulnerable to that I think so actually I would I would like broadly agree with you there I think this because this is something I've been kind of thinking about recently uh, for reasons um mm-hmm. but I think the the show is um in its original conception, especially the classic series, although the new series, as you're kind of saying, doesn't really get away from this, but it's very bound up in a lot of kind of imperialist assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, insofar as the Doctor is originally conceived as a kind of gentleman scientist stroke explorer. And to be honest, most conceptions of the Doctor don't get very far from that uh, in one way or another. I think like... There are exceptions, and I think the show works through in certain stories, kind of finds different ways of coming at it. Yeah, and the pol- there's the police box as well. I mean, the I think especially right now, the the police box as a symbol has a kind of uh, some weird connotations. I I keep coming back to the I can't remember exactly which story it was in um, in series eleven, but there was there was some story where the the doctor referred to kind of her, like her, almost like her guiding principle as being um, sorting out fair play throughout the universe or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, there was, I mean, I've not, not to rag conservative on. Conservative liberalism coming through there again. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to pointedly step away from ragging on the Chibnall era for once. I, I And I actually think even in some of its more kind of progressive elements, like under Davies, under Moffat, under um, Andrew Cartmel as well. I think it's rare for the show to actually get too far from that kind of 
base conservatism and like attachment to symbols of empire in one way or another. I did have to face an awkward Zoom conversation with my family when they didn't understand when my sister asked why I had like a blanket with police on it and I had to explain that it was my fleecy fleecy TARDIS blanket. Actually Kieron's fleecy TARDIS blanket. I should not be claiming ownership of this. <laughs> okay. It's the fleecy blanket on its way. That was me uh I, I, I didn't mean to imply that you have responsibility for bringing police-themed merchandise <laughs> into the house, just that uh, I always use it and it's not actually mine. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this is kind of worth bearing in mind all of the time. You're right, Jacob, in that this is a story that kind of brings out some of those underlying assumptions and some of that underlying iconography in some ways that are more overt than usual, but yeah, I mean, it's it's almost always a kind of underlying the, 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 the series. And to be honest, it's something I usually find I only even bring out when it's either very obvious, as in this case, or the show is actively trying to work against it in some kind of mm-hmm. interesting way. way, which, as I say, it does at various points with mixed success, I think. Uh, so, is there anything else you want to say about this story? Oh, there is nativity, nativity imagery. I almost forgot. Uh-huh. Which, because uh, Red follows a star to get home. And um, someone, who I think it was Johnny Spandrel argues that part of the reason why motherhood is kind of centred in this story is that is as a kind of nativity sort of gesture. I'm not necessarily convinced by, but I can I can see where he's coming from. But yes, that 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 Reg, the pilot, actually God, mm. or Joseph. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very confused nativity imagery. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's because he's also the Magi. Yeah, also, and I don't actually, know. Sorry, go on. I, I was just gonna say I don't know who the Doctor is in this analogy. I mean... Shepherds. Gabriel, actually. No, not really. Anyway, sorry, what were you going to say, I was just going to say, because you mentioned Reg. Mm. Something that's weird, and I I can't remember, I feel like this is probably around the same time, but maybe it's not, maybe it's after. Alexander Armstrong, on their show, Armstrong and Miller, Mm. used to play like a, a, a stereotype British pilot, didn't he? Yes, he did. Which I I do wonder if that was conscious casting. Like, I suspect it probably was because I've seen it brought up in a couple of places. In they used to story. play like they had like a skit a skit where they were both RAF pilots, but they'd speak in like modern yeah. slang. Mm, mm. So they'd be like, "Oh, that is proper well sick binky <laughs> or whatever." <laughs> it was a bit odd. Mm. But yeah, I think they probably were (laughs) consciously doing that. Oh, and there's the bit where he follows her home. That's the only reason people don't like this episode. I don't know. I just, I just, it just made me laugh at this point. To be honest, like, yeah. well, it's like way she's like, she's like, I didn't want to make a fuss, and it's like, well, that's concerning. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's I don't know. I'm not that bothered by by actually. It's weirdly, it's that bit that doesn't bother me, just because the way she delivers it is kind of. It feels to me, and obviously this is very subjective, but it feels to me more like a kind of self-deprecating joke mm. than, than anything. And it's 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 kind of, it's more of like a, I, 
I hate myself for having to say this, but more of a keep calm and carry on sort of joke than anything. It's also structurally it is doing something because Reg follows her home at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. Wait, he already followed her home. But like, you know, you know what I mean? It's foreshadowing the the plane and the star and all that stuff. I feel like they could have laid the seeds for the following her home by the star without it's something about the way that it's written just makes it sound as if like even without that I didn't want to make a fuss. It just sounds like he was like stalking her home rather than yeah. like, walking her home, which is what it looks like. It does appear to be that, yeah, yeah. In the flashback, so it's just something about the way the line is the line is phrased. I think. Yeah, um, I, kn- I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the... like, yeah, you're right. Like, even just walking her home, you know, for some reason, like, would have would have been a better way of doing it because technically that's mm. kind of what she's doing, isn't it? Like at the end. Mm. Yeah, I think they could still have got the like word following specifically with the walking her home. I think mm. that would have been a more sort of a less like jarring way to phrase it because it does sound very strange. Like yeah. when she first says it, I like it did make me sort of chuckle a little bit in like a oh oh dear kind of way because it does sound like he was sort of like following her behind the trees yeah. and stuff and like <laughs> just in a very sort of overtly stalkerish way when I don't think that's what's intended and it's not really what's shown, but it still has that kind of resonance, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yet again, it's the kind of like, it's the it's the use of a trope that like, this is not its worst manifestation in pop culture, but mm. it is still an unpleasant trope. Mm. If you're persistent enough, marriage. yeah. yeah. Uh, as a final note, actually, on uh, wardrobe, wardrobe, there is a bit uh, very early on where Reg is is um, reading a newspaper that has the headline, War Looms. And so I'm assuming if it hasn't happened already, then there must be a War Looms um, series in the works at Big Finish by now. Mm. Yeah. Looms yes. because of that's, it's like, that's how they're making the Time Lords. Yeah, well, that's how they're making... Uh, this is specifically the kind of looms that, like, churn out war versions of the, the Time Lords. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. That's where they got the War Master from. They I wove was, Derek Jacobi. It's just some subtle looms propaganda. Mm. Mm. I love the idea of the looms, to be fair. <laughs> like, from what I've heard of it, anyway. I've not actually read, read the book. But. Yeah... Maybe someday we should do like a special episode on Long Barrow. Well, we should, I we'd have to read, to read it first. It first. <laughs> I imagine we'll probably talk about looms whenever we do our timeless children. Episode. Yeah, whenever that comes. Um, I don't even really understand the looms, but I just find it very funny. Yeah, no, it is hilarious. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, um, so let's move on to the snowman. You will confine yourself to single word responses. One word only. Do you understand? Why? Truth is singular. Lies are words, words, words. You met the doctor, didn't you? Yes. And now you've come looking for him again. Why? Take your time. One word only. Curiosity. About? Snow. And about him? Yes. What do you want from him? Help. Why? Danger. Why would he help you? Kindness. The doctor is not kind. 
now? No. The doctor doesn't help people. Not anyone, not ever. He stands above this world and doesn't interfere in the affairs of its inhabitants. He is not your salvation, nor your protector. Do you understand what I am saying to you? What? So, the snowmen. It feels a lot more... It feels structured a lot more like a typical Doctor Who episode than mm. uh, Wardrobe, which I mm. mean as a point in its favour, because whilst I don't think it's doing too much innovative stuff with the beats that it hits, it does at least hit them, whereas I think Wardrobe is kind of a bewildering mess in a lot of ways. I It's nice to see Clara... It was interesting watching this for the second time, knowing what Clara's whole deal is, which mm. obviously I didn't the first time I watched it. It's a bit odd in that I think that people watching it for the first time on Christmas probably wouldn't... Would I, I, I think I, would, I remember being frustrated by the fact that Clara seemed very, very much the perfect companion, but obviously watching it back, the reason why she is is because she's already had like a season of becoming the Clara Oswald that we know mm. now. Mm. Um, but I think it's it, it's 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 better to see her in this episode on a second watch, I think. It, it kind of makes sense of things like how she knows to say pond. Yeah. yeah. Um, which at the time I was like, well, that's a bit of a coincidence. I don't like the sort of testing of her although I understand that the Doctor is kind of in need of a companion of a specific calibre at this point, but I never really loved that. But at least here it is kind of framed as him being a bit unreasonable. Yeah. What what struck me about the kind of villain's plot, having watched this not long after A Christmas Carol, was how similar it seemed to the villain in A Christmas Carol, where it's like, Victorian, because mm. obviously Sardic is not actually a Victorian, but whatever. Victorian man with traumatic childhood becomes kind of evil through sciencey means and wants to control people. I know that's very broad and simplifying things enormously, but I think because I'd watched it far closer to A Christmas Carol than anybody normally would, because they're like two years, more than two years apart. Two years, yeah. I felt I, w- I was comparing them and finding the plot in The Snowmen to be a bit lacking, I think, because a lot of the time has to be taken up with Clara in her incarnations as barmaid and uh, governess, that I think we don't really get enough time to focus on the villain side of things. Um, I do kind of like the thing of you can't think about the snowmen or they'll appear, but I still feel like snowmen as monsters is a bit too close to the kinds of things that were tiresome in the Russell T Davies Christmas specials, where it's a Christmassy thing, but it's bad. I mean, I I like this special fine. I just don't think that it really... I think the most interesting aspect of it is Clara. Um, And I kind of wish that they had not done the thing of just chucking in a villain for the sake of having a villain in a Doctor Who story. 
and maybe just gone all out on like fight the mystery of who Clara is and seeding some stuff for the next season. I think that probably would have been better. Hmm. It did make me think a bit of the thing that I remember we mentioned in our last Christmas special, Christmas special about uh, Russell T Davies putting Max Capricorn into the Voyage of the Damned because he thought that Doctor Who stories needed a villain. Mm. It's not quite... None of these are as bad as Voyage of the Damned no. by a long way. <laughs> but the fact that there is this kind of... Be- I'm going to call it a B-plot because it's I see this as mostly being about Clara, that there's this B-plot with the Great Intelligence and Richard E. Grant that did feel a bit like it was there because... It, it felt necessary as an add-on to a Doctor Who Christmas story when actually the bits that I thought were strongest was just Clara, really. Mm. But that's just my that's my takeaway from the snowmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jacob? Um, I'm not particularly keen on this one. Probably not very surprising, but... I don't think it thematically comes together very well. Like, I, I can't really... You know, unlike, like, Christmas Carol, which, you know, is tied together well, like, thematically, I, don't, I, I can't really see a way in which in which this one is really doing anything productive. You know, like, e- even uh, Wardrobe, which I don't really like, like, particularly, but, like, it, at least it does clearly have some themes and it is trying to get a point. With this, I, I don't really see where it's going apart from, as you say, like introducing Clara, um, or, or introducing Clara again to then be killed off again. So in that sense, yeah, I guess I, maybe it's more of a plot-based thing, but the plot is also very thin on the ground. Um, Unlike the snow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't really get it to be honest. Um, that being said, there is stuff in it that I do like. Um, the thing that I like in it primarily is the the Doctor's kind of like apathy and, and removal from things. I think it's a really interesting way to go. Um, I kind of would have liked to have seen them develop that further, really. Um, mm. And I think there is... The one thing that I can see thematically is there's clearly some kind of thing about, like, you know, kind of being abstracted and apathetic versus, you know kind of actually being down the ground doing things, which is, you know, obviously visually very clear in the whole, like, fairy tale aesthetic of him being up the ladder and then the staircase and then the clouds versus what's actually happening on the ground. But, yeah, beyond that, I can't really see a lot, really. I think I think when it gets to the, the, the latter half, where they're in the house and the governess comes out of the ice, I think there's way too much going on there. You've got, like, you, you, you know, you've already got the snowman, You've got Richard E. Grant. You've got Snow Globy and McKellen, and then suddenly you've got the 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 old governess as, as this ice creature as well, mim- imitating a parrot for some reason, whatever it is. Um, and then obviously the the paternosters or whatever they're called come in, who I'm also not very keen on, which is probably another reason why I don't like this episode. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they. They work quite well here. Uh, I'd, I'd like because this episode is kind of largely light-hearted. I would say until the end, um, it kind of makes sense. I have issues with them particularly later on because they just thematically plain don't work with and tonally don't work. But yeah, 
And so I talked earlier about how, like, all of these stories benefited from my expectations going in. A Christmas Carol, I had actually watched a few years previously and, like, had pleasantly surprised me. Uh, Doctor of the Window and the Wardrobe, I hadn't watched for quite a while, but it ha- it did, like, um, I had some memory of it. Um, I remembered a lot of the kind of key images and stuff like that, and also just heard people talking about it. I had zero memory of this episode. Absolutely nothing. It was like, it was as if there had been like a silence standing next to me the whole time I was watching the episode and it had just been edited out of my memory. And that's usually a kind of thing that can go either very well, like you get pleasantly surprised or very badly where you're like, oh, I see why I forgot this. This isn't really either, (laughs) weirdly enough. I suppose I was pleasantly surprised in that I enjoyed the experience of watching it. Um, I do, like, I agree with a lot of your criticisms. I think it's um, the last third or so in particular is very messy. I like the I like the Clara stuff, but that's largely because I like Clara, um, as I've mentioned before. And I, I do agree with you, Beth, in that this, it kind of makes more sense after you've seen Name of the Doctor and you know what's going on with Clara. Which isn't an issue for us rewatching it, but I suppose would have been at the time. I do like the removed doctor, kind of apathetic doctor thing. Mm. But I do... Th- I'm not sure Smith was the doctor to do it with. Yeah, is my, that's fair. my problem with that. I think it, like... It doesn't seem right for him. And, like, weirdly, it's the... After he gets kind of broken out of that funk... When he's going into Dr. Simeon's office and he's doing the Sherlock pastiche. That suits him so much better. Mm-hmm. That it kind of like... The contrast seems very weird. Funnily enough, um, Husbands of River Song briefly does a similar thing with Capaldi. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I think works a lot better. Mm-hmm. But it's also... It's it's like the first few minutes of the episode in that instance. I actually do quite like the snowmen themselves. Partly because they're like another... Uh, and I'm, I'm pleased to be able to say this phrase, they're another Moffat mimetic monster where they're based on perception, they're based on how you view them and how you think about them and that kind of thing. And I think there is something going on with them in terms of like the... I think the, the snowman of the title encapsulates both them and Dr. Simeon because there is this kind of... this thing running through the, the story, which I don't think is super well fleshed out. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the kind of the Victorian values, the kind of like the lack of, should we say, overt emotionality, the lack of empathy in particular. Because mm-hmm. we see him very early on, like feeding his workers to the snowmen, yeah. basically. So I think there there is something there. I, As I say, I don't think it's very well fleshed out. The snowmen don't need to eat. So where does all the food, where does all the workers go? <sighs> Sorry, I just realised that now... That is a good question, and I do yeah. not have an answer. I, I don't know I'm either. stressed. In the same way that I don't really have an answer for why Ian McKellen is a snow globe. Um, um. Oh, I will say, by the way, just as a brief note, um, the Victorian setting, I think, is kind of... Well, as I say, I don't think the Victorian values thing is necessarily that well fleshed out. I do still think this does a better job with its setting than The Next Doctor. Mm. Which was very much kind of like yeah. a let's set a story in Victorian times just cause. Mm. Whereas this, I think there's stuff going on with that and there's stuff going on with like 
as I say, there's still the kind of Christmas discourse and like Victoriana in general is kind of where we get a lot of our ideas of Christmas and a lot of our kind of Christmas iconography. And so I think there's something going on there, although, again, I don't think it's super well developed. I have to say the design and particularly the costume design is very good in this episode, as it is in all three of these specials, actually. But particularly the two the two children that Clara is um, governess to, the, the girl looks like a specific pre-Raphaelite painting of some girls burning leaves that's in Manchester Art Gallery. <laughs> So they were very, like, bang on with getting the feel of the period. And so whoever done the costume design has done a good job. And I like the sort of, like, slightly Tesla vibe that um, Dr. Simeon's office has. So I think it, it looks very good. And it certainly does more to justify rooting through the BBC period drama cupboard mm. than um, the next doctor does but I which is not saying much admittedly yeah, I know but um, I think it's not it's definitely not as thematically strong as A Christmas Carol which no. deals with some similar themes yeah oh yeah the his, the other historical note I was going to make um, before I started thinking about other things as I do this comes at a weird moment in the show's history because the reason the great intelligence is there presumably and the reason why it specifically references the Web of Fear with the map of the London Underground on the lunchbox mm-hmm. is because it's going into the 50th anniversary year. So it's it's doing the thing that the back half of season seven would do of like gesturing to old stories and old mm. uh, villains and stuff like that. But, and I cannot tell if this is a coincidence because I can't quite work out the time frame, but four episodes of the Web of Fear were recovered in 2013. So, like, a few months after the story broadcast. So there's a weird thing where the story gets... That story gets explicitly referenced. Mm. And then suddenly it turns up in a TV station in Nigeria. Yeah. Especially, as well, given the fact that Smith can't remember, you know, the thing about the underground... Mm. Like, he's got little fragments, but he's like, I can't quite place this. You know, so there is this sense that it's like this hole that has now been filled... Yeah, um, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I just thought that was a that was just a weird little note. Oh, there's one other uh, Christmassy thing that occurred to me in relation to this story, which is the the governess persona that um, that Clara has, because I'm pretty certain that um, Jenna Coleman is like drawing on Mary Poppins mm. in her performance uh, in a kind of weird mirror of what Michelle Gomez does a couple of years down the line, actually. And Mary Poppins is, like, a festive favourite that is always on TV at Christmas. Mm. So, while it's slightly tenuous, I did quite enjoy that. I mean, I I think also her barmaid is quite consciously supposed to be Nancy. Yes, yes. And specifically Oliver rather than... Oliver Twist, yeah. yeah. So I think they're having some fun with, like, literary things again. Yeah, I just looked something up because I wanted to check because I was sure that I was remembering this. I didn't want to, I didn't want to misremember this. But it's the same house as in the ward as in wardrobe because oh. Digby is the name of the little boy mm. in this, and Uncle Digby is the person who owns the house. Ah, so I, I assume that, that it's supposed to be the same house. Mm. So I have no idea what that's supposed to mean, but mm. um, just a 
Just a thing there, unless it's another Digby. It's oh. Just everyone's called Digby, and Digby's the name of the boy. It's that's the name of the uncle in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was just thinking that. And the boy in the magician's nephew. Which is exactly what I was just about to mention, yeah. Which is set in kind of about the same time period as this. Mm. 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 I hadn't put that together before. Yeah, but I I don't think it really means anything. (laughs) No, well, it's It's just just a nice detail. Yeah. Mm. It's an Easter egg. Yeah. A Christmas egg. Mm. Wow, I have said almost everything that I have in my notes already. I just want to say that I uh, really don't like that it's smaller on the outside thing in the grand grand history of trying to get the next companion to say something different than what everybody Mm. else has said before to show how special and interesting they are. Although I suppose it could be like future Clara like trolling the Doctor. See, I think it kind of is that, Mm. yeah. It's like she already knew on some level that it was going to be bigger on the inside and so she says something different. Mm. But then it's weird how much of this episode is like quite good in hindsight, but was infuriating at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't like the bit at the end where like the great intelligence isn't destroyed by getting rid of Simeon's memories and it has to be destroyed by like the single tear on the cheek of a golden child or something. Yeah, I mean, that's going a bit too far into the kind of... Mm. It's going a bit too far into the kind of like um, the the prizing of empathy sort of stuff that we've been talking about. Mm. Um, it's it's a shame because I like the the other version. The, yeah, like, that it's like just him. Yeah, he's like he's like because great intelligence is such a thing that you would think about if you're like a kid that thinks you're special, mm. and it sounds so like silly, and then it makes sense when you realize that that's how he thought of himself as a yeah. child. And it also, it plays into the whole kind of uh, Victorian values thing of like, that he sees himself as like removed and self-sufficient in some way and so kind of concocts this weird fantasy thing. Mm. But yeah, I I don't like the, it's it's very um, trite. Yeah, I think I would agree. There was a critical mass of snow at the house. If, If something happened there... Salty. Saltwater rain. It's not raining. It's crying. The only force on earth that could drown the snow. A whole family crying on Christmas Eve. Shall we talk about how these compare to the Russell T. Davis? Oh yeah, let's actually. Um, Because yeah, I was saying even in advance of this podcast that I for sure prefer all three of these to both Voyage of the Damned and The Next Doctor. Yeah, I, I um, agree. Yeah. I would say, I don't, I'm trying, I've been trying to figure out where Runaway Bride sits because I think I think of it similarly, I'm on maybe a similar level to both Wardrobe and The Snowman. Although I think I might like The Snowman a little better, which is gesturing already, already towards my rankings. But And I definitely like Christmas Carol more than The Christmas Invasion. I think they definitely average out as better mm-hmm. yeah. than the than the last lot of Christmas specials that we talked about. Christmas Carol, obviously, in particular, mm. is good. I would say Runaway Bride is where they kind of start being better than Wardrobe for me. Mm-hmm. Because although they both have some elements that I don't enjoy, 
in terms of their treatment of women specifically, mm. <laughs> as well as other things, I think that Runaway Bride is just better paced. Um, and so it's more enjoyable to watch. Whereas I think Wardrobe is quite confusing to watch for me, at mm. least just because it's not doing the things I expect it to do. And so it's confusing and not in a fun way. But I do think that none of them get as bad as Next Doctor or Voyage of the Damned. No. I think I largely... What about... Sorry, go on. No, 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 go, please go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think I largely prefer these to the Russell T. Davies stuff. But as as you know from, from our episode on the Russell T. Davies stuff, I really cannot stand most of his mm. Christmas specials. I know, I know I've heard Moffat himself kind of reject this kind of contrast, but I think it is there. I think the big contrast between this and Russell T. Davies... Uh, and it comes through in the series in general anyway, but I think it comes through particularly in the Christmas specials, is the whole fairy tale aesthetic. Mm. I think that's the major contrast between the two of them. And I think also these episodes tend to be trying to do something a little more substantive thematically, even if they don't yeah, always definitely. succeed, which is, which is good. Mm. I do like how these ones deal more head-on with things that are associated with Christmas, stories about Christmas, mm. things we associate with the Christmas season. I think that's a much smarter way of... If you're going to have a Christmas special, I think this is a much smarter way of doing it than just yeah. setting the story at Christmas and then having some Christmassy stuff as sort of set dressing, which yeah. I think is really what all of the Davy Zero ones are, Pretty even much, when they're yeah. like not that bad. Yeah. So I think I'd rather see stuff like this that is actually taking on some source material um, and trying to do something with it than just a regular episode of Doctor Who, but there's a killer Christmas tree for no reason. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, yeah, I mean, drawing the distinction between Moff and Davies, well, I think it's a slightly overused critical tool sometimes in some quarters in particular. Uh, I think it does make sense purely because this kind of aesthetic that we're talking about both the, the fairy tale thing and I think to a greater extent the engagement with Christmas continues into the Capaldi uh, mm. Christmas specials as well. Less so Return of Doctor Mysterio, I think. But yeah. then again, I haven't watched that in several years, so I could be wrong on that. Um, Until next year, the mm. next Christmas special, Christmas special, when we'll have to watch it. Mm-hmm. Should we head into the rankings? Let's do the rankings, yeah. Um, so... Like, the general shape of our rankings is probably fairly evident at this stage, but um, I will go first. So at the bottom of the three, I've got um, Wardrobe, which I think I don't... I wouldn't quite say I outright dislike, even though I have some substantive issues with it, which um, I think both of you uh, in different ways have articulated very well, actually. But there is something about it the the childlike wonder of it, especially to begin with, that I do kind of really respond to. And I think there are interesting things in there that I quite like. Some of them are buried and some of them are outweighed by other things, but uh, in general I'd say I land somewhere around neutral on it. Then at number two is The Snowman, which is maybe a slight mark above that <laughs> uh, in terms of being like... I, I, ju I kept thinking while we were talking about it I kept dancing around the word fine, even though it is not written by Mark Gatiss. 
I was thinking, actually, I, I forgot to say this, but I in my head, I think I was contrasting it a bit with the Crimson Horror. Mm-hmm. I think it's substantially better than the Crimson Horror, actually. And I Jenny think... has the same outfit. Oh, that's true, actually. And I think it's it's dealing with similar subject matter, and I think it's dealing with kind of, to a degree, with sort of uh, Victorian industrialization and profit-seeking and that kind of thing. And I think Snowman does it better than Crimson Horror and with less dodgy moments. And it's, it's I found it fairly enjoyable. If apparently forgettable. Um, and then number one is Christmas Carol, obviously. Um, because it's genuinely very good. And frankly, I don't have much more to say about it than that. I think it's a, it's a highlight of Smith's era. And for all that I'm not a huge fan of Smith's era overall, I think there's very good stuff in there. And A Christmas Carol would be one of those episodes. So, Babette. Ah, it's me. It is. So, I actually... It took me a surprisingly long time to settle on the order of the bottom two in Mm. my rankings. I think just because whilst I have got... um, I, I do have wardrobe in third... I think it has things. I think it has more to recommend it than its reputation would suggest. Mm-hmm. I think that it doesn't really. I, I'm. I don't think it deserves to be bottom of the of quite as far down the bottom of the list of. Was that just new who? Or? No, no, that was all of it. Okay, yeah, it was. It, it was in like twin be, dilemma territory. I don't. It's not that bad. No. Like there are several episodes that we've uh, of Doctor Who that we've covered on this podcast that yeah. I can think of that are worse than it mm. by quite a significant margin. Mm. I just think that it it acts it, it gets into some dodgy territory, sort of stumbling in in its vague and and, and not very tightly scripted way. Mm. But I think that there is at least one real thing to recommend it, which is I do think that Claire Skinner's really good. Mm. Um, so that was probably why it was like pushing into second. But in actual second, I have the snowman, just because really like the quality of like the, the the tightness of the plotting kind of bumped it up really. And it's nice to see, it's nice to see Clara. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's. I'm not in like an. I'm not in a hurry to rewatch it necessarily. Um, but I. It's it's for a Christmas special. It's decent. Then, obviously, in first, uh, no surprise, I have A Christmas Carol, which I think is honestly probably my favourite of the Christmas specials that we've covered this year and last year. I think that it actually is doing interesting things with Christmas and Christmas stories and Christmas themes, and I found it genuinely quite emotionally affecting. So, um, yeah, big approval of christmas carol here Mm. yeah uh i'm gonna sound very similar um i (laughs) i wondered if this might happen yeah Uh, i have to admit there was a tussle between two and three um yeah three i have wardrobe because yeah it's it's trying to do it's trying to do some positive things thematically i think it's trying to do some interesting things but i think it it does too many things wrong you know, to to really justify it going up any further. It's, it's it's not just that it does lots of things wrong. It's that they're they're particularly problematic. I think um, mm. all the stuff that I was saying about you know kind of 
this nostalgia narrative, what we've discussed about gender and ecology and all of that, um, I think it just doesn't quite work. Second, I've got the snowman. Yeah, I really struggled to, to decide between the two. The snowman is above wardrobe plainly because the stuff that wardrobe does is so problematic that I couldn't put it up any higher. That's really the only reason why snowman is, is second. I think it's not it's not very substantive in terms of what it's doing thematically. It's not particularly interesting. I don't really have very much to say about it. Uh, and then top, I have Christmas Carol, because in contrast, it is doing interesting things thematically. It is emotionally intelligent um, and affecting. And yeah, uh, I can't really add very much to what you've said and what we've said throughout the, throughout the show. But yeah, it's very good. Do we call this like the definitive ranking of these episodes then? Because we've all said exactly the same thing. <laughs> I think it must be like with um, season 11, where we all had the exact same ranking. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I think so. I think it is. It is just Carlton means we're Stone. right. Well, it must do. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's Christmassy harmony. That's what it is. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> So, that's it for that. Mm. Um, so we will be back in the new year. Um, either we will either be doing the uh, season thirteen episodes that we've been promising for a while now, or um, we might have something else in between as like a stopgap. Um, we might uh, do a sort of general thing talking about the the series as it looks at the moment. Um, it will kind of depend where we're at. We will decide that. But yes, until then, uh, I have been Kieran. Uh, I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Happy holidays. Slash Merry Christmas.